1: Professor of History and the Professor of Imperial History in uh, the History Department Imperial Russian. Uh, Patrick, as uh, most of you know, is the Associate Professor associate professor in the Department of Religious Studies at Indiana University. Uh, and he went to Indiana the, in 2011, a few years after he defend, defended an excellent dissertation here at the University of Wisconsin. As a matter of fact, Patrick is as Wisconsin a Russianist out there as there can be. He did all three of his degrees. The University of Wisconsin. His dissertation was a a very interesting study, treating a well-worn topic, uh, sort of the history of liberal thought in pre-revolutionary Russia, and turned it on its head by uh, uh, suggesting that it was deeply grounded in uh, in several key theological concepts uh, generated by Slavophil thinkers in the 1840s. Uh, This. uh, cut some people by surprise. Uh, he has uh, uh, already embarked on an interesting and, uh, and productive publishing career. Uh, he edited with Judith Cornblatt, co-edited with Judith Cornblatt, uh, a collection on uh, entitled Thinking Orthodox in Modern Russia, Culture, History, and Context, uh, published by UW Press in 2014. He's also written some very uh, interesting and important articles on uh, freedom of conscience and the limits of the liberal Solovyov, I'm dealing with uh, Vladimir Solovyov, obviously, Slavic Rid- Religious Thought and the Dilemma of Russian Modernity, which was published in uh, one of the leading <laughs> journals of Indo- European Ur- intellectual history, and then a review article uh, on, on, uh, dealing with a, sort of a, uh, a broad uh, book of uh, essays by uh, Laura Engelstein. Uh, on uh, uh, the Slavophile empire. And it's on that note. I'm not going to insult you by reading the title. You can see it. I can't. I just talked. But I will uh, yield the floor to Patrick and ask you to welcome him with me. Patrick.
0: It really is a pleasure to be here. I, I never thought I'd be on this end of the uh, arrangements. Uh, when I was in college here, I'll make this very brief. when I was in college here, the only time I really came to Ingram, Ingram Hall was when I was coming from David's lecture, coming up Bascom Hall, dead of winter, bitter cold, and I was heading up to Van Heys to take one of Judith's courses, and I needed just to warm up a little bit. So I had passed through the hallways here and come out that back entrance down uh, at, uh, around the th- third floor of Van Heys. So uh, to, today's talk that, that I have for you is, as you can see, it's uh, Orthodox Impossible, which is an, an intentionally um, um, provocative title, and I'll get into that in, in, in a bit more uh, later. But I want you, I want everyone to know, this is um, my uh, apologetics. Uh, that um, this is the first time I've presented any of these thoughts uh, or ideas or arguments to a public crowd. The only person who might uh, know any of this is my wife Martha, who's in the audience. Right there, there's Martha. And uh, she told me, uh, we, we go on a walk every night, and this is what I've been talking about for the past couple of weeks. And she told me, if you keep talking about this, we're not going to go on walks anymore. <laughs> so I told her, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll send it uh, to Krika and see if uh, <laughs> uh, So you're going to hear something that even my wife doesn't want to hear about. So take that for what it's for. And I have a brand new clicker that I've never used before. So I'm going to see how this works. So um, my talk is uh, roughly divided into two par- or, sorry, three parts. Two larger parts and the third part, my conclusion is still a work in progress, much like most of this talk. It's a bit, it's a bit clumsy. It's a bit open-ended. There are some promises I, I know I can't keep uh, in this talk, uh, but uh, we'll work through those. And, and so I really encourage anyone who has uh, criticisms or questions to ask at, at the end to, to do so pointedly to, to help me work this out because we'll start to work it out here uh, uh, as a talk first and then write it up as an article. So the, the, the division of it is the religious turn and its unintended irony, uh, just to show you how rough my, my talk is. Uh, anomalous, thank you uh, Eric Carlson. Anomalous provocation with a little manipulation. And then finally, what is Russian Orthodoxy if it is impossible? Why study Russian Orthodoxy? Or more importantly, what is it that we're studying when we study Russian Orthodoxy? That's, that's my pitch. But it was in writing, uh, it was in working with, on this volume and writing this book, and especially once I got to Indiana University's Department of Religious Studies, that I began to ask all sorts of questions that were only um, inchoate when I was here. Uh, even though I was always encouraged to ask questions that challenge the, the, the assumptions in scholarship, and, and David really underplayed his role in, in my education, which it was, the, he was my principal educator. I would, I would like to make that very clear, but always asked the question, it, you know uh, about this existing scholarship, don't accept what other scholars say about your topic, challenge it. And so that's what this talk really is. It's much more of an engagement with scholarship than it is with Russian Orthodoxy, although we'll talk a little bit of, uh, about that as well. So the other thing about my, my talk, I, I haven't uh, perfected the art of bullet points yet. So there's, there's <laughs> a lot of long-windedness or a word that I had to look up but when David first used it in reference to me, logoria. Um, I talk a lot. And so I'm here uh, now with uh, some verse uh, as opposed to bullet points. So one that I want to talk about the religious turn. Before I do that, I have to talk about what existed before the religious turn. And I am going to mainly focus on English language scholarship in, in, in this talk, uh, although the article I'll write will include Russian language scholarship as well. And that prior to the late 1990s, and... This is not including the, the intellectual or the work on Russian religious thought that, that, uh, that Judith and Richard Gustafson and others were doing in the early to mid-1990s. But really like the, the institutional history of, of Russian Orthodoxy, it was really focused on these sort of things, church, theology, and doctrine. And so the, you know, the evidentiary base was church documents uh, about uh, the history of the Russian Orthodox Church. And also, when you're doing the intellectual history, you'd focus on theological and doctrinal texts and debates. And we think like George Florovsky's very famous work from the 1930s on the different the ways of, or paths of, of Russian theology. That was really the, the, the core body of scholarship that exists, really focused on church theology and doctrine. And in those studies, you would, the scholars mainly focus on church-state relations, church administration, institutional networks, religious thinkers, and, and what I began to see is that, you know, structural and intellectual deficiencies, They were are trying to find out what went wrong, right? And that's what I say here. The main intent was to explain the Russian church's weakness, weaknesses prior to or culminating in the revolutionary decade of 1905 to 1917. What went wrong was the big question that was always being asked. And they were organized around narratives of decline, contestation, extra-ecclesial alternatives, and missed opportunity. <clears throat> But with the religious turn that begins in the late 90s and really accelerates in the early 2000s, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm a child of that historiographical development, at least as a, when I was dissertating and writing my dissertation, is that the shift was away from church theology and doctrine toward the study of what Christine Warbeck calls lived orthodoxy or lived religion. Religion on the ground, the everyday religion of parishioners, priests, their families, peasants, monks, nuns. Right, the orthodoxy of pilgrimage, miracles, faith healing, conversion, things like that. That's what the real shift occurred. Uh, and turned to focus away from these uh, more official texts or theological texts and things like that. And how did people live their religion? And part of that also meant that it was a, a move towards uh, you know, trying to understand experience and imagination, domesticity, gender, habitus, and, and the stories that people were telling through these Orthodox signs and symbols and using Scripture or how they learn Scripture at home, things like that. And these narratives of this scholarship was mainly organized, or these, this scholarship was mainly organized, and it still is, around narratives of resilience, variety, world building. Like you, they, they create the world they live in through their Orthodox categories, their Orthodox experiences, as well as, similarly to the earlier scholarship, alternatives and missed opportunities. And we'll get to that in a and I could list dozens of books and more articles to, to, to identify this historiographical development in the study of modern Russia. Uh, maybe second only to the imperial turn that occurs in the 1990s and early 2000s, or maybe the subjectivity turn around that same time with the, with the study of, of, of Bolshevik and early Soviet period. But really this, this religious turn was, the, was a major <coughs> historiographical development. And of the two um, titles that I want to point out today are, are, are these here. Scott Kinworthy's really wonderful book, The Heart of Russia. Uh, it's about the Trinity Sergius Monastery. You see a photograph of the monastery here. It's in Sergiyev Posad, north of Moscow. And Irina paired Spiritual Elders, Charisma and Tradition in Russian Orthodoxy. And it's about uh, these Tartsi, these Russian elders who offer spiritual advice initially just to novices who want to become monks as well as other monks and, and nuns. And then sometime in the, in the early 19th century, it jumps outside the monastery walls and it's a, it's a form of orthodox practice that is shared with laity, parishioners. And you might, for those of you familiar with uh, Fyodor Dostoevsky's The Brothers Mazov, you might imagine uh, the chapter on uh, the women of faith, and it's these pilgrims who arrive at the fictional monastery that the the, the, the Ketama, I can't speak right now. Ketamazov. Thank you, <laughs> are are visiting and they are there to seek spiritual guidance from this elder, the fictional elder Zasima. Okay. So that's what she Irina Parent and, and Scott Kenworthy uh, are doing. And they were really informative for my own work, because I am studying uh, asceticism and monasticism the way it's being interpreted by scholars in the 19th and early 20th century. What sort of meaning Russian Orthodox churchmen, theologians, and lay religious thinkers are giving to monasticism and asceticism. And I really relied on their work. But I'm also going to privilege them because they're going to be the ones I pick on a little bit in this talk. So some of the results and assumptions that that I find in the religious term... One is that there was this, you know, this idea that you that, that the religious turn is meant to understand Russian Orthodoxy as it was experienced and practiced outside those narrow confines of church theology and doctrine. I mean, that was you even see that exact language when they, in, in the introductory uh, paragraphs of any of these monographs, they they'll say explicitly that that institutional history is done, the theology is done. Let's see how people lived. Orthodoxy. They really wanted to divorce Orthodox life from these elite perspectives and definitions of what Orthodoxy is. Because all this stuff out on the ground didn't always meet what the theologians wanted it to be. And it certainly didn't meet what the hierarchs wanted it to, to be. And it certainly didn't meet what the Holy Synod wanted it to be. But was it still Orthodox? And that's part of the question that I'm asking, right? Orthodox impossible. And then some of the assumptions in this religious turn is that categories like church, theology, and doctrine. Do not adequately capture the, the multiple modalities of orthodoxy, what it means to be and live orthodox, as it was lived by the faithful. And so what matters mostly in this scholarship now is orthodox life. And it's the language that's used and it's the subject that's, that's interrogated. But in these results and these assumptions, I also noticed what I thought was an irony of this religious turn which was uh, that church theology and doctrine still resonate in the plot devices, categories, and interpretations in and of the religious term. Sometimes it's maybe, not intentional, but sometimes it might be more obvious, and sometimes it's these secularized forms of theological narratives that have been smuggled into, I'll go ahead and jump, jump ahead a little bit and then go back, into the psychology, sociology, and anthropology of religion, the kind of stuff we do in a religious studies department, you can see that there's all these sort of theological presuppositions that, that frame the way that, that psychologists and sociologists, like Emile Durkheim or whatever, the way they plot and narrate religion um, has these theological inflections about them. And so probably because of that, this imperative to essentialize, determine, and give narrative structure to the purpose and function of religion, in secular idioms usually, all this other stuff gets smuggled back into it unintentionally. And I'll unpack that o- over the course of this talk. But these are just some of the broad working definitions that I'm using here that obviously don't capture the meaning of these words in their entirety because they're so complex. But by church, this, the churchiness of, the, of this religious turn is that sometimes scholars involved in the religious turn find themselves being the arbiters of and advocates for a particular type of religious practice in Russian Orthodoxy. They like some uh, Russian Orthodox forms of asceticism over others. They like the the tranquility of the mind, the purity of the heart. No one likes horsehair shirts and chains and mortification <laughs> of the flesh, right? And so you can hear that in, in, in their scholarship and even even in the way they privilege it. No one wants to be again from the brothers uh, Karamazov. No one wants to be Father Fedor Point, right? Everyone wants to be Father Zasima. And then in the theology, and what I mean by this is that, uh, and how it's smuggled back in, is that they, there's a tendency to ascribe extra-historical overplus. I, I borrow that word from from Robert Orsi, uh, great uh, historians of, 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 of Catholicism in particular. Uh, overplus meaning to religious belief and practice. So there's not just historical meaning, trying to understand what's going on historically, but to give it even more meaning. Like this is this will determine Russia's future course how Russia can regenerate itself. And I use that word regeneration because it's what Scott Ken- Kenworthy uses on the very last page of, of his book about Trinity Sergius. And then by doctrine, there's this tendency to delineate, try to delineate right orthodoxy from what's obviously an oxymoron, rock, wrong orthodoxy. So that's the irony that I identified in this scholarship. It's subtle and it's not, so often it's not even intentional. It, and, and some of it, like I said, it, it doesn't even have to do with church, theology, and doctrine. It's just that if you're using the methods of the psych- uh, or approaches that you have in the psychology, sociology, and the anthropology of religion, which unknowingly also carry this, this doctrinal and theological baggage, then it's going to seep in in other ways as well. And I'll try to unpack a little bit of that as well. So, what I argue is there's a the re- the, the return of church, theology, and doctrine despite, uh, in the religious turn, despite claims to the contrary. So the advocacy, certain types of religious practice generate are, are thought to generate better psychological, sociological, and political results than others. And There's a tendency to think that if Russians practice more of that tranquility of the mind and say the Jesus prayer, things like that, that's going to be a lot better for Russian politics than it is wearing uh, horsehair shirts. Um And this description, narrating, interpreting, this is what you see in the religious turn that there's a tendency to narrate and interpret Russian orthodoxy according to, parenthetically, theological genres. For example, there's a tendency to to argue that there's a movement from or a movement away from right belief. And then what you should do is you should always follow right belief. And then also this idea of delineation or the doctrinal approach. Uh, The question is, what is authentic, meaningful orthodoxy and what is not? what practices adhere to right belief, and what practices deviate from it. So these are all structured in, in very subtle ways, sometimes more explicitly than others, though, uh, in this religious term, despite its claim that it's moving away from church theology and doctrine. So let me give you some examples of the return. And I want to do, a, uh, the first few examples are going to be informal and certainly unfair, because uh, I'm, I'm going to go to the archival source that I don't use anymore and most young people don't use anymore, which is Facebook.
1: <laughs>
0: uh, and then I'm going to make a few uh, formal uh, use a few formal examples. So, Facebook. So on August 1st of this year, uh, this uh, monument entitled 1914 uh, was unveiled unveiled in the in the city of Pushkina which is outside of Saint Petersburg, the old Tsarskoye Selo. Okay. And here you see the the monument, uh, the memorial, and uh, or the monument. Uh, here it is. Um, with the cathedral in the background, uh, Orthodox priest, um, official delegations, uh, uh, armed uh, armed forces, uh, maybe a police band here, uh, uh, police contingent here. And it was attended also by the lieutenant governor, uh, equivalent of the lieutenant governor of St. Petersburg, who gave the the, uh, opening remarks. And this event, right, I don't know if any one of you all picked up on this or saw it. I wouldn't have except through Facebook when some of the uh, colleagues that I've already mentioned uh, began to talk about it on, on their feeds. And the two that I'm, uh, that I'm particularly interested in is Scott Kinworthy, who first reposted the original news story, and we'll look at that in a moment, and uh, the, the, the uh, former Irina Popkova, now Irina Duque uh, that's how you pronounce her name, Married name uh, who published this, uh, the the Orthodox Church in Russian politics in 2011. Right, so these are people on Facebook, but they're also people who know what they're talking about, or at least put some sort of consideration into what they're talking about, even if it is on Facebook. And also, just by way to justify my use of Facebook, they also use Facebook just like we all do to promote events. Does Krika have a Facebook page? Right, exactly. So we use this. Scott Kenworthy, like any good scholar now, he promotes his articles on. Facebook. You can get PDFs of his articles from, from his Facebook page. And so here's the article uh, in a journal, it's uh, an online journal called the St. Petersburg Diary, Nievnik. And it's a, uh, it was an interview with the sculptor, Vadimir um, Godervoy, who's talking about uh, this memorial, uh, 1914, which was recently opened or un- unveiled or, uh, at Pushkina. And he reposts this from uh, a friend of his, uh, Russian, uh, Alexander Resnick. And, and Scott, Kenworthy, Scott Kenworthy writes, Truly bizarre. What Russian orthodoxy is coming to? This is statue is supposed to be a monument to World War I. Okay. And then shortly thereafter, Arena uh, uh, Ducunois responds, Is it Russian orthodoxy or is it Russian society? And then Scott's response is, Good point. This wasn't a church project. So I'm want to unpack what I think are some of the problems in those statements, but I'm not going to you know hold that against them because it is Facebook and who, who, who goes on to Facebook anymore Now first of all, I just want to say that it's not like that there is not a historical example of this uh, being a real event during the first World War. I just want to point that one little thing out so here's a photograph from 1914. I would have loved to include this in, in, in my book of a Russian Orthodox priest out on the Western Front or the, the, the Russian front for, for uh, Russian Empire, um, same image with the with the uh, rifles here. Actually, if you can see it here, right? he has he has the three rifles. He has a prayer book here. He's doing sign up the cross right, and the same thing blessing soldiers on on, uh, on the front. But we'll save that for a different discussion. I want to go back to these three quotes because I think in unpacking these three quotes, we can begin to see again informally and unfairly some of the problems I have. Uh, with uh, the religious turn. Not problems with, but it's something I want to identify and begin to complicate so we can rethink some of the ways that we approach the study of Russian Orthodoxy. So, let's go to these quotes individually, and I'm going to offer you what I think are some of the assumptions and implications that are embedded in these quotes. So first, the one by uh, by Scott Kinworthy, right? Truly bizarre, what Russian Orthodoxy is coming to. And I'm going to read it from here. Um, um. One is I see that there's an assumption that Russian Orthodoxy is supposed to be one thing, but is now, unfortunately, becoming something else. I mean, you can certainly pass commentary on that, but is Russian Orthodoxy one thing? And does this one thing become something else? There's also, for me, an assumption that Russian Orthodoxy is, some sort of sing- is a single entity that collectively develops in a linear, linear direction moving from what it was or is to what it's becoming. And I think Russian Orthodoxy is just too complex and variegated and contingent to be contained in this, this the way that he's talking about here, again, informally on Facebook. But I'll open it up a, a, a little bit more in a moment. And then also the assumption that Russian Orthodoxy is a discrete normative entity that should not be implicated in the politics of myth-making, memory, and patriotism. As if that photograph I showed you from 1914 doesn't suggest that that's what it always does. I mean, I could have showed images from 2015 at a Russian airbase in the city of Marazovsk, in which Russian Orthodox clergy are uh, putting holy water on fighter jets. And I can show you paintings from uh, the late 1850s commemorating the Crimean War, in which Orthodox priests are blessing uh, Greek volunteers who came to fight on the side of the Russian Empire in Sevastopol. So there's that. And then I want to turn to uh, 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 Irina Dukhanois' quote. If I call her Popkova, it's only because that's how I first knew of her. And her claim, is it Russian orthodoxy or is it Russian society? And for me, the assumption here is that that Russian orthodoxy and Russian society are discrete, neatly contained entities. as As if one thing over here is Russian orthodoxy and something over here is Russian society. And that you can... Segregate these things, isolate these things, interrogate them on their own, and watch them interact with each other and see who's influencing whom. That it, it strikes me as much messier than that. These are these, these are these are for me again because it's on Facebook. It doesn't matter much so much, but you can see it in scholarship too. It's a very clumsy way to talk about Russian Orthodoxy and, and its relationship to Russian society. Even I even feel uncomfortable now using the, those categories. The assumption that Russian Orthodoxy exists independently of society, or of culture, or of history. It's part of those things, and and those things are part of it. I mean, a lot of criticism can be leveled his way, but if Max Weber taught us anything, it's that about religion. The assumption that Russian Orthodoxy can be isolated from Russian society is already noted. And the assumption that when Russian Orthodoxy goes wrong, it is the fault of some other thing, in this case, Russian society. Oh, Russian society's too nationalistic, too jingoistic, they're all fooled by Putin and, and all that sort of stuff, and that's why Russian Orthodoxy is going wrong. And then Scott's response to that, a good point, this wasn't a church project. And for me, then the assumptions here and the implications that I see in Scott's statement is that the assumption that the Russian church is the authority of what is and what is not Orthodoxy. But why is the church the authority of that? I mean, that's what the religious turn was about saying that the stuff that's going on the ground that looks like what we euphemistically call popular religion, isn't that orthodoxy too? That's lived orthodoxy. That's the orthodoxy on the ground. It, it, it's real people. Also, the assumption that the church is some unconditional fixed category at, at, akin to an invisible church. And for me, the implication, or one of the implications I've seen that is that, that, that if it is not sanctioned by or derived from the church, that it is not Russian orthodoxy. But, you know, Why does the church get to decide what's Russian Orthodoxy and what's not Russian Orthodoxy? Who died and made it Pope? (laughs) (laughs) And then the implication that Orthodoxy is a churchy religion. But again, the religious turn was trying to tell us that that's not what Orthodoxy is. It's not just church theology and doctrine. It's lived experience. So, uh, let me move uh, to some scholarship. Uh, to come back to uh, Scott Kenworthy and Irina Parrish. And, and and I'm not, again, saying this to uh, just to cover myself. These are remarkably good, strong, informative books, and I, I've derived so much uh, knowledge and information out of them, and, and I've learned tremendously from them. And, and I'm I'm in constant conversation, uh, constant is the wrong word, I'm in conversation with them, and we, we talk these things out, and Uh, Arena Parrot's invited me to Tartu to give a talk before, and Scott and I have been on panels at ACs, all that kind of stuff. But let me identify a few things in their text uh, that I think uh, capture this just as well, although it's a bit more uh, wordy. So uh, there's 387 pages of text uh, before you get to the footnotes in in Scott Kenworthy's book. So here we are getting close to the end. and Near the end, in the conclusion, Scott says that the repeated pattern of monasticism's revivals that follows each attempt to suppress it from the 18th century to the 20th centuries suggests that monasticism was not merely a phenomenon peculiar to the Middle uh, Middle Ages, but rather is something central, even intrinsic, to Russian orthodoxy and to Eastern orthodoxy in general. We'll get to that in a moment, but there's there's this idea that there's something intrinsic that Monasticism, and the type of monasticism particular to the Trinity Sergius Monastery, is intrinsic to Russian Orthodoxy, so that in some ways you can define Russian Orthodoxy by that type of monasticism. (coughs) That you can essentialize Russian Orthodoxy to what's going on behind these monastery walls. Then on the um, same page, the story of the Trinity Sergius Lavra Monastery, lives in the collective consciousness of Russians as representatives of the nation's history, both its moments of grief and its moments of triumph. In this way, even perhaps those who are not religious, (coughs) Trinity Sergius bears meaning (coughs) surpassing, there's that over plus that I had mentioned before, surpassing its significance as an architectural monument because it represents, and this is someone else's quote, the centuries of existence of the people's spirit. So again here, this idea of, one, one is essentializing the narod as if it has a single collective consciousness. And in this consciousness from uh, 1345 when, when Trinity Sergius was founded up until 2010 when the book was published, as if that is some sort of unchanging, fixed, static, um, invisible thing that, that's tapped into collective consciousness of the Russians. You can hear how the, in, in, there's a valence of, these, uh, uh, of church theology and doctrine in, in what he's saying. And then finally from, from Scott's book, the very last page, the narrative of memory and redemption that conflates the veneration of St. Sergius of Radoniege, who had established the monastery in 1345, and the moral revival of the nation as a whole, first articulated in 1892, Right, that's when the, this conflation occurs in 1892, Survived well into the 20th century. And in contemporary post-Soviet Russia, <coughs> ridden with internal strife, economic instability, and moral confusion, the association of St. Sergius and moral revival is as compelling as ever so that this spirit can once again contribute to the regeneration of the, of the Russian people, Gruski Narod. So again, the centralizing Narod, thinking that there is a particular spirit, a single particular <coughs> spirit embodied in St. Sergius that, that, that transcends time, that's extra-historical, that exists after his death, and is always recapitulated in the same way, and that it's carried up into 1892 when the, the commemoration of his, uh, of, uh, when he dies in, in uh, 1392, the 500th uh, commemoration of his death, and that it can regenerate uh, post-Soviet Russia. That if we can only get to that, St. Sergius and his moral revival, we can get Russia out of its problems. That overplus value that's being given to a particular, a particular type of religious practice. So, monasticism and asceticism are imagined here as essential, even intrinsic to Russian orthodoxy, as opposed to something that's historical and contingent and that it changes, it's not static, uh, that is constantly being. Uh, reinvented and reimagined and practiced in different ways. As if somehow or another the, um, the hesychastic revival of the early 19th century wasn't at that moment a modern invention. If you lived in 1825, hesychasm as, as it begins to enter into Russia, Russian Orthodox, pra- uh, Russian ascetic and monastic practice, th- that's a modern thing. It's an innovation. You don't know that that... In fact, we, we have historical evidence of bishops resisting the Jesus prayer and eldership on grounds that it is a foreign innovation. Monasticism and asceticism are imagined in Scott's work to reside in the collective consciousness of Russians. And that the spirit of monastic asceticism as practiced at one particular monastery can contribute to the regeneration of Russian people. So again, these hints of church theology and doctrine in scholarship that, that has led the way uh, and has embraced the religious turn. And then with uh, Irina Parrott's work, just two quotes from her. Um, these two I've combined, and then one more. The reputation of an elder, this spariusz, the person that provides spiritual guidance. The reputation of an elder was established from below by ordinary believers and an elder's disciples. Hence, within the Orthodox Church, eldership was be regarded as a more democratic, non-hierarchical form of religious authority. So you already hear the hint of a missed opportunity in the history of the Russian Church. Monks are real; had real power based on their spiritual authority. Hence, monastic elders represented a more democratic form of authority that could pose a challenge to the institutional Church. That dreaded Holy uh, the, the Synodal Church from 1721 to 1917. You know the, the hint here is that. Uh, if we had only gotten this eldership and to become the normative form of religious practice in the Orthodox Church, we would have been able to liberate ourselves from the tyranny of the Holy Synod or the Petrine State or the absolutist uh, 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 politics of autocracy. And then the final quote from Arena Pertt Religious traditions, like eldership, can be interpreted as acts of remembrance of those moments during which transcendent reality interrupts the dominant reality of everyday life. So that over plus meaning, something came from heaven into the world and manifested itself in the world in the form of eldership. Every detail in ascetic traditions, such as monastic rules, the control of the body, and dietary restriction, relates to the performance of the memory of tradition linking the individual to the cosmos. So now we're at a cosmological level, level of what's occurring in eldership. So again, the return of church theology and doctrine in, in the scholarship that, that uh, considers itself to be part of the religious turn. Okay. So, my nominalist provocation, de-essentializing the thing we study. So what is my provocation? There is no such thing as Russian Orthodoxy. And as soon as I say that, of course the question is, and the question I ask myself is, how can I even say that? I know historically that between 988 and 2018, there's Orthodoxy, Russian Orthodoxy everywhere in Russia. I mean, that's an exaggeration, but sure. right? From the baptism of uh, uh, Grand Prince Vladimir of Kiev in 988, uh, to the building of this church. This is a photograph that I cribbed from, from the web that was taken in July of this year, July of 2018, the church of Andrei right? There, Russian Orthodoxy is everywhere in Russia. Right? I just showed you that there's, there it is for over, over a thousand years. right? They, they've celebrated over a millennium of Christianity. Or, look, Russian Orthodox people doing Russian Orthodox things. How can I say there's no such thing as Russian Orthodoxy? Right? So here you have uh, veneration of relics, uh, here's the saint's relics here. Uh, and this is at the Saint Simeon uh, Metakion, if that's the correct pronunciation. I asked our, our uh, Greek specialist at, at the Indian, at, at the Depart- Department of Religious Studies at Indiana University, and he'd never seen that word before, he thought it might be Byzantine <laughs> Greek. Uh, Padvorya, uh, is, is the Russian word. And here, here they are venerating uh, the relics with a small gathering of people. And you have pilgrims, right, who come uh, to this Metakion, right? uh, Or Metakion, that's how you pronounce it, Metakion. Coming to this Metakion, it's just a, a, it's an auxiliary church that belongs to a monastery or a convent, but is not within the walls of that monastery content. It's usually down the road a bit. That's what this kind of, what a Metakion is, right? So how can I say there's no such thing as, as Russian Orthodoxy? We have Russian Orthodox priests and Russian Orthodox metropolitans. Right? In front of an iconostasis in a local parish church in Russia, we even have a head of the Russian Orthodox Church Patriarch Kirill. How can I say all these things? Well, let me let me try a first attempt at explanation. But also warn you that I've been manipulating you. I said that very early on, the very first slide I showed you. That there was a little manipulation going. on. So first of all, how can the term Russian orthodoxy, with its implied singularity, commonality, directionality, and essentiality, right? If you say it's orthodox, it is implied that it's singular. It is right belief versus wrong belief versus heresy. How can that term capture the variety of religious practices, mindsets, cultures, and experiences that have occurred or existed and still exist, in the eastern Slavic lands and now Siberia and Central Asia for over a thousand years. How can that one term capture all that meaning? Does it adequately do that? Because part of the question is, were these two things really the same thing? Did the people who experienced Orthodox Christianity under Byzantine rites in the 11th 11th century Kievan Rus, the same sort of religious experience that parishioners at the church of uh, Andrei Babilutsky will, will practice in 21st century Moscow? Are they really the same thing? Or is it just a term, a generic term that we use that, that aligns all sorts of differences and changes over time? Is it appropriate and accurate to use the term religion in the singular for Russian Orthodoxy up here? Right? They practice religion. Right? I, I shouldn't even use the word religion in the singular. What is religion? What is not religion? How do we even make that distinction? What is a religious thing? Again, Emil Durkheim complicates that. For me, this podium is not a religious thing. But for someone, it might be. It's the meaning that they give to it. So what is religious and what is not religious? This podium's not religious to me. I manipulate it a little bit more, right? So here we are, right, these two images uh, of the veneration of the uh, father Constantine, who was executed by the Bolsheviks in the summer of 1918 for leading a small village uprising against local Bolshevik authorities. Uh, he was made a priest martyr by the church in 2004. And here uh, right is the veneration of, of, of his relics. And this is uh, this, this, uh, the canonization or, uh, and, uh, of these saints and these new martyrs and these priest martyrs. It's really been a concerted effort of the church um, uh, since around 2000. And they've done this for hundreds of people who were executed uh, under um, uh, Bolshevik and Stalinist rule. Um, And they really promote this as a way to to remember what the Russian Orthodox Church suffered during uh, the 20th century, during Bolshevik rule. But these these pilgrims don't come to see these relics. If anyone knows the great work by Stella Rock, uh, who's a Uh, a British uh, uh, ethnographer and anthropologist and she does great work on lived religion in Russia she says that people come to the St. Simeon uh, not to see his relics but to visit the empty grave of St. Simeon the Wonderworker, who was canonized in in the early 18th century he dies in the 17th century but he was canonized in the early 18th century his relics aren't even there. They, he, there's a spring of water that bubbles up from his gravesite and people go there to cure cataracts and ailments and sciatica and all that sort of stuff. And so this question is, the church is trying to promote the veneration of this kind of stuff because it's it, it it, it, it meaningful for the church. But on the ground, people are venerating other things. And, and I read an, uh, an article that, that um, Stella Rock had, had uh, linked to one of her websites. Uh, a Russian article, and it was, interview- it was interviewing this uh, Russian priest who was involved in, in these new martyrs, and he was very frustrated. He thought this was a little bit too superstitious. So which one of these is the orthodox thing? Are they both orthodox things? But when the church is saying, no, this is a little bit more orthodox than this. And these people are saying, no, this is a little bit more orthodox than this. So it's a question over, partly over authenticity. Where does authentic orthodoxy originate? And where does it reside? Does it reside in popular devotion or in pr- official pr- promotions? And how do we as scholars of Russian orthodoxy determine the, asor- the original source of authenticity? What is the original source of authenticity? What do you turn to? The first letters of Paul, since they, those are the earliest documents that we have in the Christian tradition? Is that the source? Is it patristic writings? What is it? What well, what is the source we turn to to determine what is authentic Russian Orthodoxy and where does it presently reside? Is there a distinction between authentic and inauthentic orthodoxy and if so, how do we make that distinction? Is that venerate or when you go to that empty grave uh, Saint Simeon the Wonderworker, is that orthodoxy or is that superstition? When you think the water is going to, you know, cure your ailments? How do we isolate authentic orthodoxy from inauthentic orthodoxy so that we can study them separately, together, how they interact with one another? Are there even such things as authentic orthodoxy and inauthentic orthodoxy? And back to here, contestation and authority. These priests, led by Father Sergei Kandakov, in during Lent of 2011, wrote an open letter and recorded it onto YouTube, and, or posted it, lo, uploaded it onto YouTube, Condemning the patriarch as being uh, ha- as hanging out with fat cats and driving around in Mercedes and wearing thirty thousand dollar Swiss watches, guilty as charged. <laughs> but also because he hangs out a little too much with Catholics.
1: I <laughs> well, said that too.
0: So are they Orthodox? And if so, are they authoritative? Or is the patriarch? The authority. Does he get to determine who's Russian Orthodox and who's not? Because he, he hasn't called them, but I've seen other Russian Orthodox priests who support uh, the Patriarch uh, call these guys schismatics. So which one of these groups, or these, these uh, people here, which ones are Russian Orthodox and which ones are not? How do we make that determination? Where does authority reside? Like For the, these questions, where does authority reside in the Russian church? In the Patriarchate, the Holy Synod, monasteries, theological academies? Does it reside among priests and prisoners? as Vera shevzov suggests in her great book on Russian Orthodoxy? Does it reside in canon law, scripture, patristic texts? Does it reside in tradition? If so, which tradition? Is the location of authority in Russian Orthodoxy fixed and determined, or is it always in flux, and is it variable? The thing is, I'm asking questions that I don't have answers for. So when I say there is no such thing as Russian Orthodoxy, what do I mean? So, there is no such thing as Russian Orthodoxy in practice. Russian Orthodoxy, as I've suggested throughout this talk, is not independent of the people who practice it, perform it, enact it, embody it, memorialize it, and engage in contest over its content and meaning. To me, and, and I'll give I'll give the game, a, a game away, although I'll come to it a little bit in just a few minutes. That is what Russian Orthodoxy is. It's the contestation over what Russian Orthodoxy is. There are only people, objects, places, practices, cultural products, all the rest of it that are designated as Russian Orthodox or as not Russian Orthodox by those who find that category meaningful. That's why you'll see people today, priests and and parishioners and patriarchs, saying we are Russian Orthodox and whatever goes on over there in Europe or North America definitely is not Russian Orthodox because they have meaningful categories that they use to define themselves and to define others. But there are also people within the Russian Orthodox communion who don't like Patriarch Kirill and say that he's the false Orthodox. His is the wrong Orthodoxy. So my argument partly is that Russian Orthodoxy is this contingent, complex signifier. Right? So it's a, it's a, it's a something. It's a label that we give to things, and this label is determined by the signifiers. That is, the people who live and breathe and act and perform and embody and argue over what Russian Orthodoxy is. It's not, it's not It's not. in me to determine which is right and which is wrong, but to study the contestation. So there is no such thing as Russian Orthodoxy in scholarship. Again, as I said earlier in this talk, for me, Russian Orthodoxy is not some discrete, self-evident thing waiting to be discovered and named by me. There's no Russian orthodoxy out there that's hiding behind something. And and then I can say, this is it. This is Russian orthodoxy. Rather, Russian orthodoxy, as an object of study, is dependent upon the scholarly categories that we use, including the category religion, society, again, another misprint there, and culture. Because if I was to call Russian orthodoxy a, a, a culture... It would, it would have all sorts of other, uh, um, all sorts of implications of how I'm going to approach it and think about it and write about it than if I thought Russian orthodoxy was a religion. And then it would be even determined, like, what kind of religion? Is it a churchy religion? Is it a people's religion? Is it a religion that emphasizes asceticism? Is it an, is a uh, religion that emphasizes veneration? I mean, what, what, as soon as I make those choices, I'm already beginning to shape and affect this thing that, uh, that I'm trying to study. And I can't help it. I'm part of the problem. Because we as scholars are involved in delineating, demarketing, and determining what is captured in and what is left out of the term Russian Orthodoxy. Because we include some things and exclude other things. But other people might exclude other things and include the things that I have excluded. How do we determine these things? So let me make a few you know, suggestions about what Russian Orthodoxy is if it's impossible. These are clumsy... Uh, definitions, I'm not even thinking of them as just definitions, just things that I work with when I'm thinking about studying Russian Orthodoxy and, 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 and writing about it. That it's a confession proclaimed by those who think they belong to that confession, but not always. What do I mean by not always? Well, up in, in, in the imperial period, up until 1905, if you were born into the Orthodox Church, you couldn't leave it, even if you were an atheist. You were not only under canon law, but under civil law, required to remain registered in the Russian Orthodox Church, and you were identified as Russian Orthodox even if you didn't believe it. So that's just one little historical example of how complicated this idea of of if you belong to it or don't belong to it. Perhaps Russian Orthodoxy is a form of national and or confessional identity, except when it's not. What about a Russian Orthodoxy? Is Russian Orthodoxy a national identity for someone who practices Russian Orthodoxy here in the United States and isn't even Russian? But just that, that, that it's a Russian Orthodox church that's, that's close by, and that's the one they go to. When is it a national conf- identity or confessional identity, and when is it not? I don't know. Russian Orthodoxy is a term uh, and category of inclusion and exclusion, all at the same time, just depending on whether or not you're included or excluded, or who you want to include and who you don't want to include. So in other words, Russian Orthodoxy is, is sometimes an academic term and category. We're trying to figure out what this thing is, and and we we borrow the term from the subjects that we study. They say they're Russian Orthodox, and that these are Russian Orthodox things. Then we have to, because I don't know how else to do it. We take that same term and say, okay, this is Russian Orthodox. I even have a book in the subtitle, The Aesthetic Revolution in Russian Orthodox Thought. And I'm implicated in the same problem. So again, when I get the big point, that's when I'm trying to really drive drive this home. Russian Orthodoxy is the ongoing contestation over all these things. Identity, community, practice, places, objects, the rest of it. Narration, authority, authenticity. It's a contest. So my conditional, hesitant recommendations about what we should be doing or what we should study when we study Russian Orthodoxy, especially if it's impossible, is that we might want to bracket off the questions about about the ultimate meaning of Russian Orthodoxy. I crib that language from Peter Berger, the great sociologist of religion who wrote this book in 1967 called The Sacred Canopy. And he says, sociology does not allow him to ask the the ultimate question whether or not God is real, even if religious people believe it is. So, So what can I do as a sociologist, he asks. I can study humans. And that's what we can do. I have to bracket off these ultimate questions for some other approach maybe it's a theological approach maybe theology can, can answer those questions or at least address them but sociology can't and, I, and I'm suggesting that historical studies uh, should, should consider that possibility as well also the historical study of Russian orthodoxy might want to skew essentializing accounts and the narratives and the prerogative um, uh, to delineate And uh, I'm sorry uh, essentializing accounts and maybe it's a misprint here again I apologize for that uh, and the prerogative to delineate and narrate religion, to give religion a, a narration that is moving from here to there and that we can track it out because we can look back in the past and we can see where it came from where it went and where it's going I, to, I, I, I think we should resist that, that, narr- that, that tendency to, to narrate where something is going and then finally what historians might want to study as I've already suggested are the contests over what Russian Orthodoxy means contests of the past presence, and a contest among believers, the scare quotes, uh, and scholars. That that's what I'm encouraging, or what I will encourage when I, when I write this up and submit it for publication, for scholars to begin to do after the religious turn, which undoubtedly is the most important historiographical development in the study of Russian Orthodoxy, and, uh, uh, and, cert- and one of the most important in the study of modern Russia in the past 30 years to push our studies forward we got we we need to rethink what we what we say and we mean as scholars when we say Russian orthodox thank you